0: Welcome to Talking Dairy, where we dive into the most important topics on the minds of Kiwi dairy farmers. Today, we're discussing all things to do with one specific type of dairy cow feed, and one that's often controversial, fodder beet. Does fodder beet have a positive future as a feed for cows in New Zealand? What are some key things to consider when feeding beet through winter? And how do you put systems in place to maximise cow performance and animal health while also minimising fodder beet's risks? Well, here to answer those questions and more are Dairy Z scientist Dr. Roisin Woods and veterinarian Dr. Charlotte Westwood. Roisin and Charlotte have been involved in a three year research project on fodder beet, and they'll be sharing the results with us. This episode is one of two that'll focus on fodder beet for the New Zealand dairy industry. Our second episode will come out in August and will feature Dairy NZ senior scientist Dawn Daly and North Canterbury Dairy Farmer and Veterinarian, Trish McIntosh. Dawn and Trish will be working through their farm-level understandings of fodder beet feeding, based on learnings at Southern Dairy Hub, and in Trish's case, on her own farm and out and about with her farmer clients. So look out for that session later in the year. In the meantime, let's get rolling with part one. Rasheen and Charlotte, thank you so much for coming on to the Talking Dairy podcast today. It's great to have you with us. Rasheen, to get started... Most of the information that we're discussing today has come about from a DairyNZ-led research project. Can you tell us a bit about that project and your role at DairyNZ?
1: Thanks, Ben. I'm a farm systems scientist with DairyNZ, based down in Lincoln. And when I started my role two and a half years ago, one of the first projects that I got involved with was a beet project, and that's funded by the Ministry for Primary Industries, Dairy NZ and PGG Rights and Seeds, working together with agri-research and farmers. And our three-year project is now coming to an end, and we've got some interesting findings.
0: Oh, which is what we're going to be discussing today, right? Yeah, absolutely. Nice one. Hey, Charlotte, tell us a bit about your role. Where do you fit in this fodder beet space and how have you come to be working alongside Rasheen and the project team?
2: Oh, hey, thanks, Ben. Look, my background is that I'm a veterinarian originally, but over the last sort of quite a long time now, I have really focused my interest on the nutrition of New Zealand cattle, sheep and deer. And where I'm based is also at Lincoln, but with the PGG Rights and Seeds team at Kimahe Research Centre. And when PGG Rights and C's got involved in financially supporting the project, I got involved as well as part of the support for the project. And to be honest, Ben, it's been a real journey of learning and exploration, this project, and I feel really privileged to be working alongside Rasheen and Dawn Daly and the other members of the technical committee.
0: Cool. Oh, hey, set the scene for us, Charlotte. Roughly, when did Kiwi dairy farmers first start using fodder beet? And- Do you have any idea how many are using it now? I'm also interested in wondering, have there been any trends in its uptake?
2: Oh, look, those are some good questions, Ben. Well, look, fodder beet's nothing new to the dairy industry. It's been fed before. It's been fed in Europe since the 1500s, believe it or not. And certainly in New Zealand, it's been around back since the 1920s, mainly as mangles. Some of the listeners may be more familiar with family members and and old photos of mangles being fed to cattle. But It's really made a comeback probably from the mid-2000s onwards and initially it was just a few handful of hectares that were trialled out on a few farms around 15 years ago. As an industry, we've probably peaked an area of fodder beet at about 80,000 hectares that was planted in 2018 and it's just come back for a range of reasons, probably around about 48,000 hectares 2021 and probably something similar for the coming season again
0: thanks charlotte and it'll be good to have a have a chat a bit later about why it's come back a bit from 2018 so rasheen let's start with a wider question around fodder beet for dairy cows what was the motivation for you dawn and the project team to set up the s triple f fodder beet project
1: been a lot of the earlier research around fodder beet was around transitioning onto the crop and that was mainly to reduce the incidence of acidosis that we were seeing with fodder beet and so, there's heaps of good information out there on transitioning onto fodder beet on our DairyNZ website. But the motivation for this project came from farmers who were early adopters of fodder beet. And they were starting to question the role of the fodder beet crop in their systems due to the known nutritional challenges, but also anecdotal impacts on milk production and fertility. And in a separate project called the Foragers for Reduced Nitrate Leaching Program, We'd actually measured some environmental benefits from feeding fodder beet. So, this project, we kind of scoped it so that we could partner with farmers and better understand those challenges and see if we could identify systems that minimize these risks that the farmers were seeing, whilst also capturing those benefits that we saw through our other project.
0: Charlotte, you've been around the industry for a while, and I hear that you're quite pro fodder beet. What value do you see beet bringing to farm businesses in New Zealand?
2: Look, Ben, there's some really good aspects about beet, and that's why we see a really healthy future for beet within the New Zealand dairy industry. So some of the good things about beet is that when it's well managed agronomically, you can get some really good dry matter yields, like a lot higher levels of dry matter yields per hectare compared with other crops. So provided cropping costs aren't too high, we can get some really decent dry matter growing at a relatively low cost on a cents per kilo dry matter of crop growing. Probably a second key thing that's really good about fodder beet is because it's not a member of the brassica family. Beet isn't susceptible to some of the common diseases that can potentially take out brassica crops such as clubroot or dry rot. So that's awesome because it means that we can use fodder beet as part of the cropping rotation to stretch out the amount of time in between planting brassica crops from year to year. So that's really helpful. As um, has already been alluded to, the high feed value of fodder beet is another good news story about the crop. The bulb particularly is an amazing source of water-soluble carbohydrates or, in simple terms, sugars. So there's heaps of energy for any of the animal classes to support some really good weight gains, condition gain in the case of lighter-conditioned animals heading through the winter, whether that be in-calf dairy cows or pregnant ewes. And finally, the other reason there's a really good future for fodder beet is the useful things for the environment too, that Rasheen's already talked about. The low protein content of fodder beet bulbs means a reduced loss of nitrogen from the crop, which is great in terms of leaching under that crop. And as well as that, compared to pasture-fed ruminants, animals that eat beet have been shown to emit less methane per kilograms dry matter of fodder beet consumed. And and, hey, that's got to be really good for the for the environment.
0: Rasheen, as part of the project, I understand that you did a survey of dairy farmers relating to fodder beet. Did any concerns about cow health come through those results?
1: Yeah, the survey results around fodder beet use and feeding practices really set the scene for the project. It gave us an understanding of how fodder beet was being managed at that point in time. And one of the questions that we asked farmers was why they stopped feeding fodder beet. And one of the most common answers were because of animal health issues or because of cost and management challenges sort of were the most common responses to that one. We also found that a greater proportion of those farmers feeding fodder beet reported metabolic issues compared with those that weren't. And in this project, we've been focusing on understanding which photobet feeding practices might minimise impacts on animal health and performance. And if anyone listening is wanting to know a bit more, we've actually published the results of that survey in the NZSAP, New Zealand Society of Animal Production, in 2020.
0: How would they find that article? Is that online?
1: Yeah, that's available on the NZSAP website.
0: Cool. We might chuck that in the show notes too, just to make it easier for people. Charlotte, putting your veterinarian hat on, can you give us a couple of key things that we could be concerned about with fodder beet feeding for cows if the management isn't quite done spot on?
2: For sure, Ben. Look, as Rasheen identified through the survey, there can be some animal health issues that occur when any of the stock classes, but particularly cattle eat fodder beet, particularly if a very large proportion of the diet comes from just fodder beet and not much else, just because it's too high a quality. So with that high quality, the first animal health issue that we can sometimes see is a condition called rumen acidosis. Some people call it grain overload, but it happens on beet as well. Put simply, it just means that you get an accumulation of just too much acid in the rumen of the animal. And that causes a whole range of potential stock issues, starting off simply an animal being found dead at the extreme end. And if the animal is still alive and on, on its feet, the animals would be scouring, have a bit of a gut ache like a colic and become quite dehydrated, so the eyes will sink in and don't look too well. And with the acidosis, we can get a secondary rumen wall damage that can lead to bacteria getting into the blood and ending up in the liver and lungs, or also a condition called laminitis, which affects the feet. So we can usually avoid rumen acidosis by careful management and planning, careful transitioning of animals from pasture-based diets onto the fodder beet, keeping a really yummy, tasty source of good quality fibre, like from baleage or good quality ryegrass straw. And most importantly, from preventing animals from breaking out onto larger areas of fodder beet during that transition phase, particularly. And the other possible issue sometimes for animal health challenges for cattle on fodder beet is a potential deficiency of dietary phosphorus when you're feeding higher rates of fodder beet. And animals need that phosphorus for growth and development. And in the case of pregnant animals, obviously the needs of the unborn calf need to be accounted for with potentially low phosphorus.
0: As we're recording this mid-April, farmers who are planning to feed fodder beet this winter, where will they be at now?
1: Ben, actually they should be all set up and have their feeding and winter plans in place. However, there could be some flexibility with the timing of feeding of different supplements on some farms. And really in this podcast, we're just wanting to start the conversation for next year's planning. And there could be a few options that farmers could implement now for this winter.
0: So there's the expression that we can't manage what we don't measure. Charlotte, how relevant is that when we're talking about fodder beet crops for dairy cattle?
2: Oh, for sure, Ben. Look, it's highly relevant, as for all crop types, but particularly fodder beet. Simply, if we don't know how much fodder beet's in your paddock, it's really hard to develop a safe and effective feeding plan, particularly during the transitioning of cattle off pasture onto crops. So what we're talking about is making sure some dry matter crop yields are done well before any animals go onto that crop. And if you're not that confident about yielding your fodder beet crop, that's okay. There are a lot of people and organisations around now who'll do those yields for you. So some of the main tips and tricks to remember when you're yielding your fodder beet crops is firstly yield the fodder beet leaf and bulb separately from one another. And then when you get the dry matters back on those, you can work out the ratio of leaf to bulb. And that's really handy for working out some of the nutritional requirements of your animals. Probably the most important thing is to send a sample of both the beet bulb and leaf away to get a dry matter percentage or content determined. Because if we just pick some random dry matter percent off Google or wherever, it can lead to a lot of error when we're calculating or converting the wet tonnes per hectare to dry matter tonnes per hectare. So don't pick random numbers.
0: I understand that the leaf and bulb are quite different nutritionally. Is that important to consider when you're measuring yield and feed testing?
2: Yeah, well, this is one thing that's come out really well from the three-year project that Rasheen's been running. And it's because the leaf is full of protein and phosphorus, so that's good stuff nutritionally. And the leaf isn't as risky for causing rumen acidosis. So the more leaf on average, the better. On the other hand, the bulbs contain really low levels of protein and phosphorus, good environmentally, but not necessarily good for animals. And with all the sugars in those bulbs, you're more likely to get rumen acidosis. So if we know how much leaf is present relative to the amount of bulb, so that leaf to bulb ratio, we can decide the extent of risk of protein and phosphorus deficiency in those stock classes that have higher requirements, and as well as the risk of acidosis for those crops that have a lot of bulb and not much leaf. So yeah, the ratio will influence the nutrition of the animals that eat that crop.
0: Why is it important to test my feeds rather than using a book value, particularly when it comes to beet?
1: Foto-Beet's quite different from a lot of other feeds that we would feed cattle. Like Charlotte said earlier, with the high sugar, low protein, low fibre, and it's also low in some of those minerals that Charlotte was talking about, particularly phosphorus. So we need to be confident when feeding fodder beet that you're actually supplying the cows with sufficient nutrition, particularly if the fodder beet is making up a large proportion of the diet. And I definitely encourage farms to send away those samples of leaves and bulbs separately and get a nutritional analysis done by a feed testing lab.
0: Is the cost of doing that a deterrent to some farmers? Like are they hesitant about sending their beet away to be tested maybe because of the cost?
1: I don't think so, Ben. I mean, it's not huge costs compared to the sort of cost of growing the crop and the actual value of the crop itself. The prices of the feed testing probably vary a bit between the different feed labs. And it also depends what sort of analysis you want to get done, whether you're doing just the basic feed quality parameters, which is your energy, protein, fiber, that sort of thing, uh, or if you're getting the full suite of minerals as well. But I think really... The investment in that may well pay itself off in terms of your benefits to animal health down the track if you're actually able to implement some preventative things armed with your knowledge and, and trying to get that balancing their nutrition for the animal during that period.
0: Charlotte, is the timing of these tests important? Like, Should a farmer be testing a number of times through the season or what? what would you advise there?
2: I think if you're at that April, early May stage, that's the ideal time to get your feed testing done. So you test the bulb and leaf of the fodder beet crops for the reasons that Rasheen's already explained. And it's also the perfect time to also feed test your supplementary feeds if you haven't already done so, so that you can allocate different types of feeds to different stock classes. Your R1 cattle get the higher protein, better quality feeds and your high protein supplements go to your cows in late winter.
0: Is it a good idea to test a couple of times through the season?
2: So through the season, it's more the ratio of fodder beet changing through the winter than necessarily the nutritional value. So I'd be comfortable just testing in May or early June when they're going onto the crop and allowing for the ratio to change as opposed to the nutritional profile of the bulb and leaf itself.
0: Rasheen, I understand as well that you've collected a huge amount of feed quality data on fodder beet as part of this project. What sorts of things have you been finding?
1: Yeah, that's right, Ben. We've been collecting fodder beet samples over several years now from all around the country, I guess predominantly in South Island where a lot of the fodder beet's grown. And we're seeing huge variation in fodder beet feeding values, so things like protein and minerals, and that's between regions but also between different cultivars of fodder beet within the same region.
0: What sort of variation are you talking about?
1: As an example, Ben, we've got samples where we've analysed them for things like crude protein. And particularly talking about the bulbs, we've seen fodder beet bulbs ranging in crude protein levels from anywhere from 4%, which is really low for a cattle feed, up to 11%. And just as a reference point, the recommended dietary intake of protein is around 12% for dry dairy cows, which would be those cows grazing over the winter period sort of thing. And we're also seeing significant variation in things like minerals, like the phosphorus, which is another reason why it's really important to test your own fodder beet so that you actually know what you're feeding.
0: Rasheem, we've already talked about the need to supply sufficient nutrition. How would a farmer match up what the animal needs with what's coming from the diet?
1: Oh, great question, Ben. So we've actually got a tool available on the DairyNZ website called Feed Checker. And this has been updated as part of our project so that we've improved the input options for fodder beet to reflect the nutritional composition of the leaf and bulb. We've already talked a bit about how they're quite different nutritionally. And so you can now easily enter your feed test results. If you send away samples to the lab and get some results back, you can now enter these as custom feeds. And we've also got improved options for entering things like your dry matter content of the leaf and bulb. And you can also enter your percentage of leaf and percentage of bulb. So Charlotte mentioned earlier about that sort of proportion of leaf and bulb. And you can also sort of customise your utilisation of that crop to reflect what you're sort of seeing on the ground. And we've also added in a section which could help with crop allocation and break size calculations there. But definitely, if in doubt with any of this nutritional stuff, talk to your vet or your nutritionalist. But yeah, the feed checker tool is a really handy starting point to start getting your head around what you're actually feeding your cows after you get your feed test results back.
0: Charlotte, following on from that, where Rashim was talking about the feed checker, do the feed demands of pregnant dairy cows stay the same over winter or do things change as spring calving cows get closer to calving?
2: Yeah, for sure, Ben. Look, it's really about the protein demands of the cow that certainly do change as we head through into late winter and she's getting closer and closer to her due calving date. The calf inside starts to get pretty greedy for high quality proteins as the calf gets bigger and the growth spurt that you see heading closer to calving means, of course, that the unborn calves, combined with the udder, developing as well if she's starting to get close to what we call springing, is that a greater demand for protein in late winter and certainly much higher than earlier on, say back in May and June when they were first transitioning onto
0: the crop. And what about the forage crops themselves? What happens to those over the winter?
2: Oh yeah, well this is a bit of a challenge. As, as the, the cows got a greater demand for protein, ironically at the same time, we get those cold frosts that really hit into July. You know, you might get the odd dump of snow further south. And that results in the leaves disappearing off the top of the fodder beet plants. So as we mentioned before, those leaves are a good source of protein and much higher than the bulb. So what we end up with is that the fodder beet crop starts to get a bit out of whack in terms of the protein requirements because we're losing the high protein tops and we're getting a, a higher proportion of those bulbs. So look, it's not easy to pick up the protein deficiency in late winter in cows that are on a fodder beet dominant crop. It's not that we can easily chest for that in terms of the cow herself. But what we can start to see is cows that may be close to or at their due dates and they're calving down on the crop because with the protein deficiency, they haven't shown as much of udder development as springing. So that's always a little bit of a flag if you're getting cows calving down on crop, but you're not seeing springing with udder development. And as Rasheen mentioned, was uh, the feed check is awesome because it lets you test assumptions like changing the ratio of tops to bulbs with your actual feed tests that you've collected as Rasheen's advised. And that means that you can mix up some of your supplements. For example, if you've got different silages and baleages on hand and you feed test those, you can actually save your higher protein feeds for later in winter and feed your lower protein feeds earlier in winter when the demands for those protein by the early or mid-gestation cows aren't quite as high as they are in late gestation.
0: So you've already said that many farmers planning to feed fodder beet will already have their feeding systems in place for the coming winter. Is it too late for those farmers to make changes or are there still some opportunities?
1: Yeah, for some farms there could still be opportunities, Ben. So I guess the first step is knowing the nutritional content of what you have on hand. So as Charlotte said, your crops and your supplements and using tools like the feed checker to calculate what you're likely to be supplying with these. And if you find that there's a deficiency Is there an opportunity to move around the timing of some of when you feed particular supplements? I think Charlotte already mentioned if you've got a higher protein baleage or something on hand, could you feed that later in pregnancy or later in winter when that demand is higher? So you may have the opportunity to move around some of the feed that you already have on hand just to better match up with the demand from the animals?
0: Well, we're at the end of the podcast actually and so we're down to our final question and I just. I thought it'd be nice, a nice way to wrap up this podcast by asking you both, you know, what are the practical take homes that each of you have learnt from this project?
1: So Fodderbeat's a unique feed with many positive attributes, but it's also got some non-nutritional risks. And we can work around those and manage our feed to minimize the extent of those nutritional risks to cattle. We've seen huge variability of fodder beet in terms of nutritional content and quality. And so we're really encouraging farmers to test their own feeds, both for the dry matter content, but also for feed quality, such as your proteins and your minerals, and making sure that you're testing your bulbs and your leaves of fodder beet separately. And also important to also test your supplementary feeds that you might feed alongside your fodder beet crops. There are still options to prioritise different feeds to different stock classes, even though we're getting close to winter at the moment. You can use the feed checker tool or another software to make sure that you're supplying sufficient nutrients to your cattle over this winter period.
2: Those are really good points, Rasheen, as your three take-homes. I guess to add to that, a couple more take-homes, if you'd like, from me would be to really acknowledge that every farm manages their fodder beet in slightly different ways. And look, at at the end of the day, farmers are really happy with their, how their fodder beet system is working for them. By all means, we're not here with this S triple F project to tell people to change their fodder systems for the sake of change. I'm very much of the opinion if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If your fodder system is working really, really well, we hope these findings have been of interest. But carry on. But if there is opportunities to take some of these findings and refine your system, that's really good too. And then probably my other sum up on this one is that I'd still have that very firm belief that despite some of the nutritional challenges to animals that consume fodder beet, I still believe that the crop is very much here to stay as part of our farming systems. Really, for a range of factors, we've talked very briefly about the greenhouse gas opportunities with reduced methane per kilogram dry matter of fodder beet consumed, the end loss aspect of less end leaching under the feet of animals on the crop, and very much so, particularly South Otago and Southland where fodder beet's a really important tool to manage our ongoing risk of brassica disease management, where it's very difficult to crop year on year, and increasingly in Canterbury as well with kale crops and build up of club root in this part of the world. So that'd be my key take-homes, just to add to yours, Rasheen.
0: Hey, well, thanks Rasheen and Charlotte for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, for any farmers who want to just go a bit deeper into this, aside from the, the article that we mentioned, is there anywhere that they should go to for some reading?
1: Yeah, we're just in the process at the moment of updating our DairyNZ website for website, big pages, so I guess keep an eye out on those. And we've got a couple of upcoming publications in New Zealand Grasslands Association oh. conferences as well, but we'll make sure that we let everyone know when those are coming out.
0: Good stuff. Well, thanks so much to both of you for joining me.
2: Oh, thanks, thanks ben. ben. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's
1: been great.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Talking Dairy. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to check out more of our podcasts, go to derienz.co.nz forward slash podcast or find us on your favourite podcast platforms.